portion of Revelation is dealing with the tribulation. First three and a half years are a little bit milder. The last three and a half years are what is called the Great Tribulation. And uh, seven years, the rapture of the church has taken place and we'll be in heaven. Those of us who are saved, those that are left behind will go through a period of God's judgment on this earth. Primarily, God will be dealing with the nation of Israel during that time to bring Israel to the point where they will acknowledge Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. I mentioned earlier Brother Sharp, who's going to be here for our spring revival. One of the things that he does in their ministry is they put whole Bibles in the R&R places for the military in Israel. And uh, he's gotten permission to do that. Many times they won't let you put a New Testament, but they're allowing him to put whole Bibles there. He said, I'm putting Bibles there for the tribulation period, he said. Uh, there are going to be some Jewish people that will read them then. <clears throat> and so, during that tribulation period, God's going to be dealing with the nation of Israel. And there's going to be some tremendous things, some awful judgment that takes place. But you know, God never leaves himself without a witness. And the more wicked the times are, the more definite the testimony is of those that God leave as witnesses. In the days before the flood, you remember God raised up Enoch and then Noah. In the days of Israel's darkest apostasy, God raised up Elijah and Elisha, and he had his witnesses there. And he'll do the same again during the tribulation period. He will have two miraculous witnesses. And chapter 11 tells us of these two witnesses that are coming. They center their activities in Jerusalem, and they enforce their preaching with miraculous things that will take place as God brings judgment upon this earth. They are opposed by the beast and the false prophet. So here you have God who has two men, these two witnesses, and then the devil has his two men, the beast and the false prophet. And they all perform miracles during this tribulation period. Back in the Old Testament, you had Janus and Jambres that withstood Moses and Aaron and, and their miracles. They counterfeited some of the things that, that uh, Moses did. And here, Satan will have his two men that will oppose God's two men, and they all will perform miracles. Now, the text, chapter 11, does not actually say so, but it's not at all unlikely that God's two witnesses will execute this beast who is mentioned here, who then is promptly brought back to life again by the false prophet. If you look at chapter 13, just go over a couple of chapters, look at chapter 13 and verse number 3. Revelation 13, 3, it says, And I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Look down at verse number 12. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound is healed. And then verse number 14. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles. Let me just say this. Not all miracles come from God. Amen? That's the case here in the tribulation period. He says, Deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So the beast is going to die, he's going to be wounded and killed and then brought back to life again and become a supernatural being that then executes the two witnesses 
and we'll see that a little bit later on in the chapter, and he wins the gratitude and the awe of mankind. But the victory is very short-lived because God's going to raise those two witnesses back to life after they've been dead for, for three days, and then he's going to pour out his judgment upon this earth. Now, the text puts all these events together as part of the second woe, which is part of the sixth trumpet. We've talked about the, the four previous trumpets last week, the fifth trumpet, now the, 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 uh, the interlude there, and now we come to the sixth trumpet in this chapter. So several things I want you to notice. First of all, notice the coming of the messengers. These two witnesses are God's messengers, and they are coming, verses 1 down through verse 13, deal with that. As we think about these two messages, two messengers, I want you to notice the mandate of the messengers. They have a mandate in their coming that is given here. And a careful description is given about several things about them. There's a careful description given about the special place that is involved. What is the place where these witnesses are coming? Look with me, if you will, at verse number 1. And there was given me um, a reed... Like unto the rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is within the temple have uh, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. He talks about the holy city here. The scene that is here, the place is Jerusalem. It is the place where the, the temple has been rebuilt. And John is told to measure the temple and its courts. The Jewish people have not had a temple in Jerusalem since 70 A.D. Currently, the Muslims have a place, a shrine, at what is called the Dome of the Rock, and that is the site of the ancient Jewish temple. If you go there, and I've been there on a couple of occasions, you can look over and you can see this golden dome and, and the Muslim um, mosque that is there that's called the Dome of the Rock. And one of, there's been a big conflict. Every once in a while you'll hear on the news something about a conflict between the Jewish people and the Arabs about the Dome of the Rock. The reason their conflict is there is because one day that Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt and it must be built on the same site as the old Jewish temple that was destroyed back in 70 AD. And so something has to happen there to bring that about. Now, I've heard several different people that have, there have been different ideas that say, well, that Dome of the Rock wasn't the exact place, and it was over here, and there's different things, but many believe that that's the exact spot where the old temple was. The Jewish nation will rebuild the old temple, and it will either be built right before the tribulation or during the tribulation. Three temples had been built up to John's time. John is the, is the man God is using to record for us the book of Revelation. And there have been three temples up till his time. The first temple was built by Solomon. You remember how David gathered together the material. God didn't let David build the temple because he had been a man of war. And so he gathered material, and then Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and then it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, in 583 B.C. in 2 Kings 24 and 25. And then the second temple was built, which is known as Zerubbabel's temple, and it was constructed after the Jews returned from their Babylonian captivity in Ezra chapter 3. And then it was destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. The third temple is called Herod's temple. It stood in Jerusalem when our Lord and His apostles were ministering 
when Jesus walked the streets of, of Jerusalem and when he was here on this earth. That was the Herod's temple, and it was destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. Since then, the Jews have had no temple. They have only synagogues. However, we who are believers as Christians, as part of this church age, we know that the Holy Spirit of God lives within us, and the Apostle Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God. God doesn't dwell in a building, He dwells in people. And we are the temple of the living God today. The fourth temple will be built by unsaved Jews. It will be used during the tribulation period. And then the fifth temple, the last temple, will be the Messiah's millennial temple that is given, there's architectural plans given for it in Ezekiel chapter 40 all the way through chapter 44. And there's been no temple like that that has ever been built. It'll be built after the second coming of Christ. And remember the distinction. Christ comes, He came the first time when He was born in Bethlehem. He's coming back in the rapture, but He's not coming to the earth. He's coming in the clouds, and the saved will be caught up into, the, into heaven. And during that next seven-year period, in heaven there'll be the, the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. On earth there'll be seven years of tribulation, and then will be the second coming of the, of the Lord when He comes back with all of the saved to this earth and sets up His kingdom and rules and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now, sometimes you hear people... You see things on the news about the end of the world, you know, and you read articles in the paper. The world's about to end. People get all upset and, and all out of sorts about it. Remember this. There's at least a thousand and seven years before the end of the world, okay? And that would mean if the rapture took place today and the saved are taken out, there's going to be seven years of tribulation on earth and then a thousand years of the millennial reign of Christ. So there's at least, you don't have to worry about, about Mother Earth and destroyed. You don't have to worry about climate change that's going to destroy us tomorrow. There's at least a thousand seven years that this earth's going to be here. And then, by the way, when the Lord comes back, He sets up His kingdom and rules, and at the end of that, He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so there's a lot of things just by, by, by reading the last book of the Bible, you can understand a little bit. You don't have to fear all the things that they tell you on the news. How many of you believe everything the news says is true anyway? How many of you believe nothing that news? No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> but evidently here in Revelation chapter 11, <clears throat> the Jews have now regained the temple site and the right to do something with it. And the Dome of the Rock has either been destroyed or moved, and a glorious new temple, the Jehovah, has been built. Now it's going to be amazing. We've seen pictures and drawings and things of the temple, and when you read of the descriptions of it in the Bible, Solomon's temple was a fantastic place. Jerusalem is up on a hill. It was a temple that was built. Remember, the, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, and they were placed on this earth and chosen by God to be a witness and a testimony to the rest of the world what the true and living God is like and what it's like to serve and live for the true and living God. They failed terribly, but part of that temple was a picture of what God's temple was like, and you saw it for a long distance before you ever came to it. It was a, it was a witness to all of the world of what it was like. Remember when the Queen of Sheba came and she saw all the magnificence of it, what did she say? 
She said, all that I've heard, she said, the half has not yet been told. What I've heard isn't half of what it's really like. And can I tell you this? What we've heard about heaven, the half hadn't even begun to be told. We sing a little chorus sometimes, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. It's going to be a wonderful thing to be in heaven with the Lord for all of eternity. So the specific place is here in Jerusalem. Secondly, notice the specific period involved. He says in verse number 2, But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. John was told not to measure the outer court of the temple, because together with the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, together with the holy city, it was given over to the Gentiles, and the Bible says they will tread it on it for forty and two months. That is, you can figure it out real quick, it's three and a half years. And that three and a half years in verse 2 refers to the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the second half of Daniel's 70th week that is given in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And then in verse number 3 he says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, again that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. So these witnesses are going to last for 1,260 days or three and a half years. These two periods of three and a half years are the same length, but they do not run concurrently. The end of the three and a half years connected with the two witnesses is marked by martyrdom and the beginning of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. The end of the three and a half years that are connected with the beast is marked by the return of Christ to this earth to set up his kingdom and rule and reign for a thousand years. So there's a specific period, three and a half years he's talking about. Thirdly, there's a supernatural power involved. A supernatural power. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says in verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouths and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. There's much speculation about who these two witnesses are. Who are these two witnesses that are going to be proclaiming the gospel? Well, one of them is probably Elijah. Fire was characteristic of his ministry, and and his miracles were oftentimes those of judgment during the days of the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt. Elijah, as you know, never died. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, Behold, I, Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So many people believe that one of those two witnesses are Elijah. Let me just say, we are not told who they are. We can speculate and put together passages of Scripture, and we believe that one is Elijah. The other witness is probably Moses, and there's a lot of different ideas about that. Together, Moses and Elijah, remember, were the two that stood with the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew when the disciples, four of the disciples, were with the Lord. Moses was the one who turned the water into blood and unleashed the plagues on the land of Egypt. Some people think that the other is John himself, and others think it was Enoch himself. 
But you get a little bit of idea of the, the supernatural power that's involved in these men. Anybody who tries to attack them is going to be, is going to be killed. They will not be able to destroy them, and they, they, they will be protected by the Lord. Notice also the miracles of these, me, of these uh, messengers. The miracles of these messengers. Look at verse number 6 with me. He said, these have power to shut heaven. Now, if you remember, that's what Elijah did, didn't he? He prayed and God stopped the rain for how long? Three and a half years, didn't he? He stopped the rain. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power, to, <clears throat> power over waters to turn them to blood. That's what Moses did in the, in the uh, plagues that he brought in, in Egypt. And smite the earth with the plagues as often as they will. These, many of these judgments in Revelation parallel the plagues when, when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the reason why those are being treated in Revelation to a great extent is because the Jewish people understand that. And that God relates to them through their history and through what they know. And God is bringing them to the point of understanding and accepting Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. These messengers... First of all, they're armed with drought. They have power to stop the, the rain. There was, uh, that was one of Elijah's greatest miracles. The drought caused by Elijah, as we said, lasted for three and a half years during the days of King Ahab. And then they're armed with death. They turn water to blood, and obviously that's going to cause great death in the water itself and of those who would drink the water and so forth. Moses did that. The magicians of Egypt were able to... to mimic that, but they were not able to reverse it. And here as we're talking about the beast, and we'll see a little bit about that here in this 11th verse, the beast was a man of blood, and it's fitting that God would give the subjects blood to drink. So they're armed with drought, they're armed with death, they're also armed with disease. The plagues that will come and the diseases that will come, Moses did that. Terrible new viruses and plagues that long have cursed mankind will seize upon this world from the word of these two men. These two witnesses will have the power to produce them. No wonder they are detested and no wonder they are feared by mankind. But then notice with me the martyrdom of the messengers. The martyrdom of the messengers. These two messengers are immortal until their work was done. Look at verse number 7. It says, "And they, When they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. The beast could not kill them until, it says, they had finished their testimony. In other words, God protected them until they had finished the purpose for which God put them here. And could I say to you and to me this morning, you and I are protected by God until we finish the work that He has for us here. We don't have to live in fear. God protects us. I remember years ago when I was in college, I pastored a church in North Georgia, in Chatsworth, Georgia. My dad came to preach a revival meeting for us one time. And dad and I went to visit a home of a young lady who came to our church. We wanted to, she lived with her uncle and, and her mom, I think, were, were living in the home. And we went to visit them to try to get them to come to the revival meeting. And later that, that night, this, this young teenage girl told me this that night at the service. But Dad and I went in. The uncle answered the, answered the door, and he invited us in. We sat in the living room. We talked to him. We witnessed to him. We invited him to revival. And then, and then we had prayer, and we left. 
And that night, the teenage girl said, Preacher, you didn't know this, but the whole time you were talking to my uncle, my mom was in the kitchen with a gun. And she said, if your dad hadn't been with you, she was going to kill you. And some of the people in the church said, Brother Tim, don't go back there anymore. Don't go, don't go witness to that family anymore, or to that lady, and stay away. And you know what I told them? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suicidal. I don't want to be a martyr. <laughs> but I said, you know what? I'm not finished. Until God, I finish the work that God has for me to do. And I believe that's true for every one of us. God will protect us until our work is finished. And He did that for these two witnesses. He protected them. Nobody else has been able to touch them. But now at the end of verse 7, the beast does. He overcame them and He killed them. There can be no longer any doubt. This beast, who is not a beast to the people there, he is a wonderful man, but he's a false messiah. He's kind of the type of savior that the world has always been looking for. He dazzled the men over and over and over again. And he was killed in his own resurrection, all the world. And now he kills these two miracle workers and there's great rejoicing. He's rid the earth of these detested holy men. He's rid the earth of those godly right-wingers, Bible-thumpers who believe the Bible, you know. He's got rid of them. And that will be the capstone of his success, to kill these men. And after that, nothing would have stopped him. He had not only won the hearts of the men, but the, the minds of the men, but now he's won the hearts of them. Notice the place of the martyrdom in verse number 8. It says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city. That's talking about Jerusalem. But notice this, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Jerusalem was called the holy city, as long as it was the center of the witness of these two men. But now they've been killed, and now what does God call it? He calls it Sodom and Egypt. You see, now it's become a place of vanity and vice. It's the, the place where our Lord was crucified. It's not called the holy city. And then notice the publicity of the martyrdom in verse number 9. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Satan will see to it that the killing of these two detested enemies will be broadcast worldwide. We can easily see how that can happen. It'll be shown to the world, I believe, through the television cameras and, and the satellites and all that are involved in that. The whole world is going to focus on these two men that have been killed. It'll be shown to the world. It will be shared with the world. Look at verse number 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. Not just Jerusalem. The whole earth is rejoicing and made merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. God tells us these men are going to be seen by the whole world. Here's an interesting thought. In verse number 7, God calls their witness a testimony. He said, when they shall have finished their testimony. But now in verse number 10, it says, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them. God called them a, their testimony. Now the world says they tormented us. 
Do you know some people are tormented by the preaching of the Word of God today? Some people don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid our sin debt in full by His shed blood on the cross at Calvary. People don't want to hear the truth. And that's why there's such suppression, not only taking place now in America, but around the world against believers and against true Christians. They don't want to hear the truth. Instead of commemorating the birth of the Messiah as we do at Christmas time, now they're celebrating the death of these two witnesses. But I want to tell you their celebration is too hasty. Because in the midst of all of their fun and in the midst of their exchanging gifts and all of their partying and the celebration that's going on, all of a sudden some sobering news comes. Look at verse number 11. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God, that's the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop there for a minute. What's happened to the Holy Spirit? When the rapture took place, where does the Holy Spirit live today? He lives within us, doesn't He? So when the rapture takes place, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are taken out of this world. So to a great extent, the working of the Holy Spirit through believers, that's gone. But that doesn't mean He's still not here. He's still here during the tribulation period. Because God is omnipresent, the Holy Spirit is God, He's everywhere. And so here it says, during the tribulation period, after three and a half uh, days, the Spirit of life from God, the Holy Spirit of God, entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Notice the might of these messengers. The might of these messengers, it's seen first of all in a triumphant resurrection. Verse number 11 speaks of that resurrection. Death cannot hold them. They arrive, arise from the dead. Picture the scene. The sun-drenched cities of Jerusalem. The holiday crowds have flown in from all around the world and they're celebrating. They're looking at these corpses of these two men lying in the street firsthand. The troops are there of the beasts in his uniforms. The temple police are there. There are wicked men from every kingdom of the earth and they come and dance and feast in the streets at the victory of the beast. But then it happens. I can see the crowds as they strain against the barricades the police have put up there to keep them from getting close and touching these bodies. And suddenly as they push upon those barricades and gaze at those two men, suddenly that pale, cadaverous white of their bodies becomes a glowing rosy cheeks of youth and those stiff limbs begin to bend and move and all of a sudden what a sight they stand up on their feet and they rise and the crowd falls back and pushes forward again and then you see verse number 12 the triumphant rapture it says and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them come up hither can you just hear these see these two men they've just rose from the dead the whole crowd's there and then they hear the voice come up hither and they're caught up into heaven. And it says, And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Caught up into heaven, ascended up into heaven in a cloud. I believe that cloud is the Shekinah glory of God. They ascended into the very presence of God. The rapture that takes place. These evil men, when you think of it, you ask yourself the question, did they repent? Well, Luke chapter 16 and verse 30, 31. Remember when the rich man and Lazarus were in, the, the rich man was in hell and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom? 
And he said, send Lazarus and he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, there's a great gulf fixed. Those that are in heaven can't come to you and those that are there can't come to us. When you die, that's final. It's over. There's no second chance after death. And then that, that rich man said, well, at least send Lazarus to my brother's house to, or to my father's house because I have five brothers there that are not saved. And listen to what Abraham said. He said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he, Abraham, said unto him, If they will hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What was Moses and the prophets? That was the Bible. That was the Old Testament. That was the Torah. And God said, If they won't hear my word, if they won't hear the Bible, they wouldn't believe somebody if they rose from the dead. What if somebody came in here this morning and I said, We have somebody who's going to give you a first-hand testimony. This, this man... Mr. Smith died and went to hell, and he came back, and he's here to tell you all what hell was like. Most of you would want to listen to just see what he had to say out of curiosity, but most of you would think he's a little bit off his rocker. Nobody's gone to hell and come back. But you know what God said about that? God said if that were to take place, they wouldn't believe them either. They won't hear God's word. They wouldn't believe somebody who came back from the dead. And they won't believe even after these men rise. So you see a triumphant resurrection. You see a triumphant rapture. There's a third thing. You've got space to write it there. It's not, it didn't get on your notes there. But there's also a triumphant revenge. A triumphant revenge. Look at verse 13. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God in heaven. See, God, even through that, there's a small remnant. There's a small, there's a small group of people, a remnant. They've listened to the 144,000. They've witnessed to the, listened to these two witnesses, and there have been a few that have believed. And they give glory to God, but most of the people didn't repent. God sent an earthquake. He sent, uh, caused a, a third of the city to fall, and He says 7,000 people were killed as a result of that. The revenge of God. And then there's a second thing I want you to notice, and that is the crowning of the Messiah. We've seen the coming of the two messengers. Now you have the crowning of the Messiah. The last trumpet is about to sound. The outpouring of the vials of God's wrath will soon take place. But first, we're given a glimpse of heaven and the crowning of the rightful King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, it seems like as you read through the book of Revelation, they never get tired of crowning Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords. And that brings us to the third woe here on this earth in verses 14 and 15. He says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven. God lets us see a little bit. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. You see, the false Messiah, the Antichrist, has tried to rule and reign on earth, and God said, wait a minute, I want you to see the true King of kings and Lord of lords. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. He now claims sovereignty. The question of sovereignty is re resolved. 
He claims sovereignty over this whole world. And he says, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then notice the thankful worship in heaven. The thankful worship in heaven in verse 16, the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. What a wonderful time when he reigns forever. I want you to notice that there is an instantaneous response that comes from them. Verse 16, when verse 15 says, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, what happens in verse 16? Immediately the four and twenty elders that sat before God on their seats fall on their faces and worship God. Immediately they bow down and worship Him. Well, I believe one day when we get to see Jesus, we'll just fall on our faces and worship Him. People say, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to walk up and shake His hand. No, you're not. You're going to fall on your face before Him and worship Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. They're intelligent in their recounting of the ways of God. Verse 17, listen to what they said. We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art, you are, and you were, and you are to come. He's past and present and future. He's the eternal God. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Then they acknowledge his timing in verse 18. It says, And the nations were angry. And thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that they should, should, should give reward unto thy servants, the prophets and the saints, and them that fear the name, thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them that destroyed the earth. That's, that's getting into Armageddon. We'll talk about that later on. And then verse 19, he says, And the temple of God was open in heaven. They've had that temple on earth for a thousand years that was, that was, that's going to be rebuilt at the end of the tribulation time, but he says here the temple is open in heaven. The temple's open. And there, there, there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. They see the judgment of God upon this earth. And yet, they still didn't repent. They still didn't turn to God. Many of them still rejected Him. You know, it seems like today, some people, the more they hear the gospel, the more vehement they become against the things of God. And the more harsh they want to be towards believers, towards those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior. But one of these days, the Lord's going to set everything straight, isn't He? He's going to come in that rapture and take us out of here if you're saved and a child of God. He's going to pour out His wrath for seven years. Then we'll get to come back with Him and He'll rule and reign. Can you imagine what it would be like in America if Jesus was the President of the United States of America? Well, we'd have some things change pretty quick, won't we? Well, that'll happen from Jerusalem when he rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. It'll affect the entire world, and he'll be in control. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to the rapture when we get to go home to be with him. So we've seen the coming of the messengers. We've seen the crowning of the Messiah. Let me ask you a question. The third woe is going to be on earth, but there's going to be a thankful worship in heaven. 
will you be a part of that woe, that judgment, that wrath on earth? Or are you saved and a child of God? Would you be in heaven a part of that thankful worship with our Lord forever and ever? I trust that you know Him as your Savior and you're ready. The rapture could take place today. At any moment, the Bible says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the trump will sound, the dead in Christ shall be raised. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What David said in Psalm 23, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever we'll get to be with the Lord. I hope you know Him and you're ready. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the two witnesses that will share the Gospel. We're thankful that some will believe, but many will reject. And Your wrath will be poured out upon this earth. But far greater than that will be the wrath of God for all of eternity for those who reject Jesus Christ and die in their sins and spend eternity in hell without God and without hope. They'll experience the wrath not just for seven years, but forever and forever and forever. Oh, how I thank You for Your love in sending Your Son to die on the cross to pay our sin debt so that no one has to go to hell. You said God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And I pray that if there's one person here today that's never trusted you, today they'll open their heart and life to you and be saved. Settle it. Make sure. Then would you help all of us to be a faithful witness to our loved ones, to warn people, to point them to Jesus, to tell them of the love of our great God who has a place prepared for us in heaven if we'll trust you. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.